Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Lily Gorin, and today we will be discussing why the humanities matter, especially to members of disciplines like political science, but why the humanities matter in general to society and to the higher, to higher education in the United States is a question that my interviewee today, uh, Lee Trepanier, um, has uh, edited a book about. So I am joined by Lee um, to discuss his new edited collection from Lexington Books, Why the Humanities Matter Today in Defense of Liberal Education. Lee and I have worked together over the years with the American Political Science Association section on politics, literature, and film. And I know that these issues, the value of the humanities and the importance of liberal education, are important matters to Lee, who has worked on them in a number of ways and in a a variety of different venues. Lee, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thank you first for having me on, Lily. I appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm a professor of political science at Saginaw Valley State University, where I teach political philosophy, uh, constitutional law, and American politics. I also serve as the university pre-law advisor for the university. Uh, For those who don't know, Saginaw is an approximately two-hour drive north of Detroit or an hour drive north of Flint. We're a public regional comprehensive institution, and most of our students tend to be first generation. So they tend to um, see higher education in more utilitarian values. You know, I'm getting a college degree because it's going to make me more money. Um, the other thing, the other things I do besides uh, being a professor, I also serve, I'm the editor of the politics, literature, film book series, which you, Lily, serve on the academic, academic advisory board to oversee me and making sure I'm doing my job. You do a very good job. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we had uh, seven books published last year and we have uh, three books scheduled to be published this summer and and five this fall, and then we have another eight scheduled uh, for 2018. And then finally, I'm also the editor of a website called Vogelinview. Vogelinview publishes Monday through Friday um, and publishes a mixture of academic articles, public intellectual essays, book reviews on uh, political philosophy, politics, culture, and education. And and you're quite busy, clearly, doing many, many different things within the discipline of political science and political philosophy. So let's let's get to why the humanities matter today, which is a you know, it's constantly being discussed in the Chronicle of Higher Education, occasionally on the pages of the New York Times opinion section. Um, and you start out the book by examining sort of three different approaches to the decline of the humanities in higher ed. Can you tell us why you chose to assess this decline initially, as you did from the political perspectives of groups within the United States, and then by those who are not in the humanities, by those essentially in the STEM fields? Sure. Well, this project initially was in response to what we've seen, the decline in the value of the humanities in the past 40 years. And when I refer to the humanities, I'm referring specifically to the disciplines of literature, history, philosophy, 
classical and religious studies, foreign language, and some aspects of the social sciences, like political philosophy. And we've seen a decline in the humanities really in a number of ways. So, for example, in the late 60s, early 70s in this country, approximately 17% of students majored in the humanities. Today, that number has dropped from 17% to 6%. Uh, we've also seen a decline in the number of academic positions available in the humanities. So, for example, in the past 10 years, there's been a 40% drop in the number of jobs that are offered in English and history. And we've also seen, as you mentioned, the rise of the STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, that have gotten a great deal of support by uh, the public and by universities and the government and at the expense of the humanities. And so one of the things I do in this book is sort of look at why did this come about? What are the theories of why the humanities have declined? And I've sort of lumped them into three groups, which I call the conservative critique, the liberal critique, and the professional critique. Um, very quickly, the conservative critique argues that the decline of the humanities is due to faculty moving away from what traditionally defined the core of their discipline, sometimes known as the great books, and instead teach now postmodern theory, left-wing politics, popular culture, and thereby alienating students, the university, and the public from the humanities. A good example of this critique is probably Alan Bloom's Closing the American Mind that came out in the mid to late 80s. Uh, the second critique I call the liberal critique, which argues that humanities have been declined because of the structural nature of a capitalist society. Because we live in a capitalist society, we value success only in economic terms, and thereby students are going to see the humanities of no value to them. They're going to study either vocational occupations like business or the STEM fields. And the third critique of why the humanities decline is what I call the professional critique, which is a variation of the liberal critique in that capitalist practices and values have been incorporated by the university, or what's sometimes called today the neoliberal university. And there's been a pressure on faculty to have uh, high class enrollments, to publish, to find external funding. And they use a type of um, assessment metrics that tends to, tends to favor the STEM fields. It tends to be quantitative metrics to measure productivity and the humanities uh, aren't as um, can't compete with the STEM fields in those type of in, in those type of assessments. So there are many theories of why the humanities have declined. But I sort of bro- I sort of categorize them in these three broad categories. And and you you know and you use various forms of research to buttress the sort of argument with regard to all of these approaches and certainly the the question of you know producing metrics that can be measured anybody who's in higher ed knows that's the name of the game these days. Um, so you assembled an interesting array of responses to this question of why the humanities matter. Um, can you take us? The, through the sort of disciplines that were included um, in terms of responding to this question um, and, and to some degree what the different disciplines had to say that was distinct one from the other. Sure. Uh, I should first mention that part of this project was also in response to some of the arguments that have been made in defense of the humanities in the past 40 years. So you hear a lot of arguments that, such as from Martha Nussbaum, why the humanities matters, that Learning the humanities makes you a better democratic citizen or studying the humanities improves your critical thinking skills. And although I'm sympathetic to those arguments, I think those arguments have sort of run their course. And and 
this book is really trying to find new arguments within the disciplines to to show to the public why the humanities matter. So, for example, um, Christopher Phillips, our philosopher, uh, makes the case that um, studying philosophy is at the same time both impractical and practical. It's impractical in the sense that what students are studying at that moment has no immediate payoff or utilitarian value, but it's also practical in the sense that it could be practical in the unforeseen future. Since we can't predict what the future is, what we study today that may be impractical may be actually very practical later on. And he uses the example of Descartes and Bacon. Uh, at, um, what they were studying at their, at their time was, was uh, perceived as impractical, but we know in retrospect that it was actually very practical because it lays down the foundation of modern mathematics and science. Another example is uh, David Lunt, our historian. He says, he argues that history needs to be reconceived, that history is not just a collection of, of facts from the past, but what history needs to be refashioned as a rhetorical exercise that deals with present themes, values, and ideas, that deals with that audience at that time. That history really is drawing upon the past to make arguments for the present. And if we see history this way, it can actually become more relevant to the public. Um, Jim Harrison, our foreign language professor, he makes an argument that the study of foreign language is really a study of diversity. Uh, foreign language is more than the, the mastery of the rules of grammar and syntax, but it's actually a way to understand how people represent and connect with reality. How do they see the world differently? And so if you really want to become, uh, if you really want to embrace diversity, the best way to do it is to learn a second language. Um, and then finally, we have Nazomi Irini, our literature professor, who, who diagnoses the current state of liter literature departments today as what she calls the theory mess, that literature departments have become so preoccupied with theory, they become sort of marginalized within the university. And what she calls for is that literature departments need to rethink of their role within the university to become more interdisciplinary and more globalized in their studies. So those, those, are, those are some of the examples of, of uh, uh, professors in the humanities have tried to devise uh, new arguments of why their subject matters. And and in this context, and you sort of talked a little bit about about this question at the beginning of your response, was this sort of uh, longer standing understanding of the the role of the humanities for creating better citizens, um, which goes to the question of, to some degree, you know, this this issue of liberal education, small l liberal education, um, and what it is the humanities in particular may be able to teach us um, with regard to understanding citizenship, or is this sort of role of being a citizen one that you can learn to do in any field that you might study at a university? Well, that's right. And I think um, Kirk Fitzpatrick, our classic studies and philosophy, writes about sort of the history of, the, of liberal education in the first chapter. And he argues that really there's been two periods of liberal education. The first period is from the Greeks to the mid-19th century, and the second period is from the mid-19th century to the, today. And what he talks about in the first period is that what distinguishes the first period of liberal education is the distinction between liberal and, and illiberal. So liberal education in that 
period is you study something for its own sake. You don't care about the payoff or the any utilitarian outcome. While illiberal education is you you care about some sort of outcome from your learning. And the second period of liberal education, according to Fitzpatrick, is is from the mid 19th century to the, to today, which we call now general education. Right? Is that you study a little bit of history, a little bit of philosophy, a little bit of literature, and that supposedly makes you a well-rounded person um, in that regard. And, and so what um, Fitzpatrick argues is that we need to take sort of the best of both elements, sort of um, keep the distinction of liberal and illiberal education, and to draw upon uh, general education, and particularly their standards of assessment that students are actually learning what they claim to be um, what, they're, what they're supposed to be learning, and combine those two to a new understanding of liberal education in that way. Um, it, it is, as you said, you know, liberal education is always going to be somewhat in tension with, as I point out in my chapter, civic education. Or civic, civic education is the education of students to be good citizens, whereas liberal education, as we understand it in this book, is to study something for its own sake. So there's always going to be that tension between how you teach students. Are you trying to make them good citizens or you're just trying to teach them to love what they're actually studying? And and I wanted to follow up on that also with regard to the chapter that you wrote um, in terms of understanding the role of political philosophy within the discipline of political science. Can you explain both the complex evolution as you sort of delineated it in your chapter of political philosophy within the discipline and why it remains um, to some degree an important component of the study of contemporary political science. I think before I do that, it's probably worth to take a step back for your listeners who are not political science or who don't know anything about our discipline. Sure. Is to understand that our discipline is dominated by a paradigm of what we would call behavioralism, which is basically that politics, study of politics should be empirical it should look at observable behavior. It should model its, itself after the natural sciences. And it shouldn't deal with questions of uh, morality or ethics in that way. And I would say the behavioral approach probably accounts for, what, 80% of our field? Yeah. I don't know if that's fair. Um, and the rest, 70. <laughs> and the rest is sort of uh, a mixture of, of political philosophy, political theory, and especially political philosophy, we feel a bit marginalized within the discipline, uh, rightly or wrongly. And the result is that we have really two groups. We have political philosophers on the one hand, um, and then sort of behavioralist political scientists on the other. And the two really don't talk with each other very much. They don't really engage in a dialogue in that way. And I sort of trace the evolution of how political science evolved in the United States. And I... I would argue that really from the 1940s to the 1960s was the key moment where you saw this divide between behavioral, behavioral political science and political philosophy. And you, you had three events that made this occur. Uh, the first was in the 1940s, we had an influx of European immigrants uh, who were fleeing Nazi Germany who came to the United States and had a very different understanding of political science. So you had people like uh, Leo Strauss, and Eric Vogelin, and Hannah Arendt, who saw political science as highly, highly theoretical and normative. Right? Political science needs to deal with questions of values, ethics, and morality. And this approach to political science was very different 
and then their American counterparts who saw political science as more of a sort of pragmatic or, or philosophically relativist approach to it. So that's sort of the beginning of, you could say, the divide between political uh, behavioral political science and political philosophy. And then in the 50s and 60s, you have what's called the behavioral revolution, led by people like Dahl, Eastman, and Allman, who argue that you know, political science should model itself after the natural sciences and shouldn't deal with normative or ethical or moral considerations. And the behavioralists eventually win this debate. They become, they, they're able to institutionalize themselves in the university and within the discipline, which is why they still dominate our field today. And then the third main event was in uh, the late 60s, where you, you have what's called the post-behavioral revolution, where political uh, scientists, uh, mostly political philosophers, uh, revolted against the behavioralists and argued that one, political science should deal with questions of values, and two, political scientists should be also active citizens. They shouldn't be sort of objective scientists, but they should play a, a political role within society. And so I would argue that these three events from the 40s, 40s to the 60s sort of really crystallized the sort of uh, uh, divorce within the discipline between political philosophers on the one hand and behavioral, behavioral political scientists on the other. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, we don't talk to our our spouses. And in, with, within that context, though, you know, as as you're sort of e- explaining the divorce within political science as a discipline. Um, what then is the role of political science on the humanity side, which is clearly where political philosophy, political theory, some of the kinds of works that you and I do also with regard to integrating literature into our understanding of politics. How does this become relevant within a field that is also quite dominated by, um, you know, some of the the standard understanding of science and and quantitative assessment. Well, I, I sort of address this question by looking first at what political philosophers can do to try to engage in a dialogue with our behavioralist counterparts, and so I, I mentioned three sort of recommendations in my chapters. Uh, the first thing I suggest is that. As political philosophers, we should, um, in some ways, focus on empirical political reality. And some of us do that in some ways. But um, there are some, as you know, political philosophers that's become so, so esoteric in their research that, you know, are doing questions of epistemology and ontology, which are important. But if you just spend all your time on doing that and don't come back to the, to the political question of, of empirical political reality, you really belong to the philosophy department and not in the political science department. So that's my first recommendation. Uh, the second one, I think that political philosophers have a role to play uh, with, and, and to engage in a dialogue with our behavioralist counterparts in that we can sort of examine the assumptions that we both make, right? Um, behavioralist political scientists, since they don't deal with questions of values, they assume certain things. For example, uh, they assume that liberal democracy is a preferable for a preferable regime to other type of political regimes. As political philosophers, we can sort of examine those questions. Is this true? Why is this true? Uh, you know, what are the arguments for and against, say, liberal democracy? Um, another thing, the third thing I recommend that what political philosophers can do to sort of engage our behaviorist counterparts is that, um, is what we call today sort of comparative political theory, is that are the concepts and theories that we devised in the West, are they translatable 
uh, to non-Western civilizations, or are they just sort of Western-centric in this way? And this is something we can sort of uh, work with our behaviorist counterparts, make sure that you know the methods and concepts they use are are really universal, or are they just sort of Western-centric? So I, I do sort of suggest ways we can sort of engage our behaviorist counterparts in that way. Um, because otherwise, if we don't do that, we really sort of become sort of not only marginalized within the, in the discipline, but we also become really sort of philosophers and not political philosophers. And and it, it, it is a disconnection from, you know, actual politics that we are all surrounded by every day and try to understand as political scientists. So the argument, you know, of, of engaging with um, political reality is an important one, um, particularly in making the case that political theory and political philosophy are, in fact, relevant for an understanding of the world in which we live. Um, so my next question for you is, and, and you've sort of talked a little bit about this, this tension between sort of the role of civic education, which has become oftentimes a charge that is given to political science within the university because many universities have within their charters some sort of requirement, particularly public public universities, have a charge within their charters that they must train citizens, whatever that means. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, it's, it's not usually a lot more clear than that in any particular charter. Um, but how that is in tension with what we understand to be liberal education, particularly within the United States. How does, how does a political scientist and how does anybody within humanities, social sciences, the natural sciences, the professional um, sphere in higher education, how do we approach this idea of civic education and liberal education? Well, I think for political science, it's a bit different than other disciplines in the humanities. So if, for example, if you study philosophy or history or literature, um, politics may be part of your study, but it's not at the core of your discipline, whereas political science politics is, is at the core of our discipline. It's something we can't escape, and thereby we have to address the civic education question. So other disciplines in humanity can sort of evade it if they want to say, we're just, we're just going to deal with liberal education. We don't care about civic education. But that's not an option for us in political science. We have to deal with this question. And I think, think there is just an inevitable tension between, on the one hand, civic education, trying to make our students good citizens, and on the other hand, liberal education, trying to have our students learn things just for their own sake. And, of course, the danger of liberal education is that you may, what, have students actually question the nature and the value of the political regime in which they live. And, that, and, that's, and so those two can come in tension with each other. And one way, it, I mean, it also sort of spills over to the way we see ourselves in our profession. You know, are we scientists first or are we political actors first, right? Um, you know, if we, we see our roles as scientists first, sort of standing back, doing an objective account of, uh, our, of politics, um, that seems to be, on the one hand, more compatible with liberal education. But on the other hand, if we see ourselves as political citizens first, as a role as professors, then we're probably more inclined to civic education. So I, it's, I don't have any good answer to resolving this, this tension. I don't think this tension can be resolved, but it's something that we need to, I think, be conscious of. And if we care about liberal education and, and try to navigate uh, liber between liberal education and civic education as a political scientist. 
And I, I agree with you. I think it's, it's, it, you know, it often falls in our laps to be responsible for this idea of civic education. And, you know, and you do speak to this a bit in the, in your text. Um, but the question of broadly construed liberal education, which is to try to advocate to students that you should learn for the sake of learning and the value of understanding the world in which you live, and how one chooses to be a political actor as a separate sort of undertaking is a complexity that oftentimes we also don't get to explain to students, um, either in political science or to some degree in other disciplines within the humanities. Um, and so the, this, this tension as you've sort of plotted it out is important to understand in, as your, your, um, author explained it in, in his, assessment of the role of philosophy that we may be in this sort of third period of liberal education <laughs> um, that has yet to be clearly defined or enunciated. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, it's, it's a work in progress. Okay. <laughs> so I guess the, the final question then is, you know, what is one to take away from this question that is the title of the book, Why the Humanities Matter Today. Um, broadly constructed, what does one understand the answer to that question to be? I think right now we're at the, be at the beginning of the stage of trying to find new arguments and new reasons and new strategies to show why the humanities matter. And part of the book is just really to spark this conversation and looking at sort of what each discipline can offer, new arguments besides the tried and true critical thinking, democratic citizen argument of why the humanities matter. And so each author presents, you know, their, uh, their unique case and a new reason why they think their discipline matters to students, to the university, and to the public today. Um, I would just say one of the interesting things um, doing this book is that, and it wasn't by design, that all the authors in some ways engage in a genealogical account of their discipline. They looked at sort of the origins and the evolution of their discipline. And what they found was really that in the evolution of their discipline, it faced crisis at various points. And somehow the discipline was able to adapt and overcome those crises with new arguments and new strategies. And so it sort of made me realize that what we think sort of is the, the traditional core of our discipline, it's actually just one data point in time that disciplines evolve just like living things. And if, if I think what this book is trying to argue is that we in the humanities need to come up with new arguments uh, that are publicly accessible to the to people if we want to be remain relevant in the university today. And and that seems to be an important point to to consider not only as you know individuals who are within the humanities or straddle the humanities and social sciences, but also for our colleagues in other parts of the university to understand um, you know when a discipline or a group of disciplines are in decline, and you know what may be going on with regard to that decline with regard to those disciplines in particular right now the humanities. Um, so my final question for you today, Lee, is what are you working on now? Well, I've been, um, I've been asked to serve as the co-chair for the American Political Science Teaching and Learning Conference in February of 2018. With, Good for um, you. 
Thank you. With Elizabeth Maddow at Rutgers. So that's going to take up a lot of my summer and fall organizing that. And um, but in terms of writing, I have uh, two projects um, currently under review. We have an edited volume on the Socratic method. So the question is that that project is dealing with two questions. One, what is the Socratic method? And two, how can we implement the Socratic method in the classroom? Trying to give practical examples of how to actually teach the Socratic method in, in, in uh, the university today. So that's uh, under review at the moment. And then the second project is a monograph on 19th century Russian literature. I'm, I'm looking 19th century Russian literature and politics. I'm looking at three authors, uh, Turgenev, Dostoevsky, and Tolstoy. Short so books, right? Really That's right. Books. <laughs> a lot of reading. <laughs> Will you come back on new books in political science and talk about Russian authors and politics? That sounds fascinating. I'd would, I would love to. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I had Lee Trepanier talking about why the humanities matter today in defense of liberal education. Where can one get a hold of this book, Lee? Well, they can go if, um, to the Lexington website. They can go to Amazon. Um, any. To, those are probably the two most likely outlets to purchase it. Okay. Um, thank you for joining me and, and for being with me today. And I look forward to talking to you again um, when your next book is out. Thank you for the opportunity to talk to you.